Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Holt, and I'm a board-certified integrative and functional nutritionist. I live on the seacoast of New Hampshire and work with clients in my virtual practice all over the world through private consultations and online nutrition and functional medicine programs. Functional medicine nutrition is all about diving deep with people to get to the root cause of their health issues. And that's exactly what I tackle in this podcast. All things health, food, and nutrition. Unpacking current research and almost a decade of clinical experience. I love to bring experts and thought leaders to the table so we can all learn together. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive in. Hey buds, I'm back. This is a listener question episode and all of the questions are about cortisol. Turns out there's a lot of questions about cortisol, which is understandable, especially right now. Cortisol, to a certain extent, is anti-inflammatory, and it's it's anti-inflammatory. Period. But if it's if it's in check, it helps to keep inflammation in check. But if it's not in check, it doesn't. Um, there's this interplay with cortisol, inflammation, and your immune response. So the most basic way to put it is if cortisol's dysregulated inflammation is not as well regulated and your immune response is not as well regulated. And since we're in a time and a place where we want inflammation and our immune response to be in check, it makes sense to mind our cortisol right now. This is also why chronic stress puts you at a greater risk for infections, inflammations, and illnesses. This interplay between cortisol and the immune system. Now, uh, back in episode 82 and 83, I did a far more comprehensive overview of our two main adrenal hormones, cortisol and DHEA. So it was a, it was a, such a big beefy topic that I chunked it up into two. So go back to cortisol, DHEA, and adrenal testing part one and part two, again, episode 82 and 83. This episode, this Q&A is going to build on that foundation to address specific listener questions. And because there were so many questions, this is going to be another two-parter. So today's part one. Specifically, I'll be addressing questions in regards to cortisol in the gut, how to know if your cortisol is out of whack. So I'll be talking about symptoms and testing. We'll talk all about cortisol testing and whether or not that test from your doctor really means much. We'll talk about blood sugar, carbs, and cortisol. Somebody asked, is there a best time for exercise? We'll talk about that, how to balance and regulate cortisol. We'll talk about night shifts, sleep schedules in cortisol, how to manage cortisol spikes. And then finally, we'll round out talking about cortisol in other hormones, including hypothalamic amenorrhea, fertility, and birth control. Before I get into part one, I want to remind you that the next round of Your Hormone Revival is right around the corner, believe it or not. So Your Hormone Revival is a 13-week, used to be 12-week, but I built in a rest week (laughs) because we all need a little extra rest these days, right? So it's a three-month program to balance your hormones. We address adrenal health, 
we address the thyroid, and we address female sex hormones, and we address all of the interplays with this neuroendocrine system. So we talk about blood sugar regulation, and we talk about liver health, and we talk about nutrition, like deep nutrition. Um, The official start date is September 7th, but I will open registration well in advance, August 17th, and that's when we have plenty of time to get labs ordered up. So this uh, program includes functional lab testing, which I'll talk a little bit about today. The last two rounds that I ran did sell out. So this is the third round. Um, the first two did sell out. So I always encourage folks to sign up early if they can. That's why I offer early bird pricing. And that is um, sent out to anyone on my email list. You can join the email list at erinholthealth.com forward slash hormones. It, um, there's no, you're not committing to anything by joining the email list. Just a heads up. It's not like you have to, once you're on that list, you have to join nothing like that. You're just going to be the first person, people to be, um, to get to, to know when registration opens. So, and you also get early bird pricing. So that's that the discount code goes out in that email. All right, so that's that. I didn't want to forget to tell you about that. Let's get into the cortisol questions. The big one that we'll start with was is basically how do you know what's happening with cortisol? Like, how do you know? Um, I'm going to hopefully not butcher these Instagram handles, but maybe you'll get a chuckle out of the way that I pronounce them. Um, you know, it's like you see something writ out, written out and you think, <laughs> you think you know what it is and then somebody pronounces it. You're like, oh, that's, that wasn't what was going on in my head. Anyway, underscore Lonnie underscore Kate asks, lots of overlapping signs with other potential causes. Is testing best or are there other ways to know? So this, these were all submitted through Instagram stories, which is why all of the questions are really short and abbreviated, but I'll do my best to, um, to decipher what people are asking. So it sounds like Lonnie underscore Kate is having a lot of different symptoms and not really sure what's causing what. Is it stress? Is it cortisol imbalance? Or is it something else? So she's asking, is testing best or what do I do? So I do consider the HPA axis the Achilles heel of the body. So HPA stands for hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal axis. Again, journey back to 82 and 83 to go more in depth about this. But the H and the P, the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland are both in the brain. And brain is command control for so many other things in your body. So the HPA affects lots of other systems. It's a system in and of itself, but it's interacting with so many other systems in the body, including the immune system, your digestive system, GI health, inflammation, uh, mood. So in my view, it's always a good place to start because if the HPA axis isn't functioning appropriately, if there's issues with any of the communication within that axis, not too many other things are going to function at full capacity. What I've found is that by addressing the nervous system, um, trying to downregulate the stress response, other symptoms that somebody might be experiencing can be mitigated. Stress and cortisol dysregulation is the biggest trigger for so many things, including autoimmunity, 
fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue. There's almost always adrenal involvement with these conditions. Um, stress can be a massive trigger for chronic digestive problems. Um, we know that's the case for IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, but beyond that, otherwise. Um, cortisol dysregulation can lead to intestinal hyperpermeability or leaky gut, which if, if you have leaky gut, that can open up the pathway for um, immune dysregulation, for joint pain, for inflammation, for food sensitivities. You know, that's, that's something I'm going to be addressing in an upcoming show. Lots of people dealing with food sensitivities. Um, and one of the first places that we have to start with ongoing food sensitivities, especially if they're increasing, um, is with the stress response and how that factors in to how you're reacting to food. Um, high cortisol can also suppress secretory IgA, which is um, an immunoglobulin in our mucosal lining. So this can impact mucosal immunity, how your gut responds to pathogens. This is why some people get sick and some people don't. Cortisol in the HPA axis is part of that inner terrain that we, we talk about um, or that I've talked about on the show quite a bit. So this sort of explains why two people can be exposed to the same bug, to the same virus, to the same pathogen. One person can get sick and show symptoms and one person doesn't right? It's this concept of inner terrain, um, how, how our immune system is functioning, how our microbiome, our gut microbiome is functioning, but cortisol and HPA axis also factor into this concept of inner terrain. So the immune system is super important. And, and I'm just kind of, I'm kind of riffing here because I don't know what specific signs Kate underscore Lonnie underscore Kate is um, is dealing with. So I'm going to just kind of talk to a bunch of other symptoms, but GI symptoms are, are often one of them. And if you have suppressed immunity, it makes you more likely to get an infection, right? That makes sense. But cortisol dysregulation or increased cortisol or a stress response, if we have an overactive stress response or we're dealing with chronic ongoing stress, this in and of itself can suppress immunity, right? So this is what I was saying earlier, why stress, ongoing stress, long-term stress can make you more susceptible to infections. Um, in episode 88, where I talked about H. pylori, I talked about how when we're stressed, GI infections can flare up. And this is why I tell people to start with your hormone revival, because that's a common question that I get. Like, which, which, how should I start? Where do I, where do I opt in to your programs? And I like to start people, as long as food is locked in, I like to start people with your hormone revival, where we can do this extensive adrenal rehab program before diving into GI issues, before diving into gut issues. Um, you can have certain infections like an H. pylori that are living in you 
asymptomatically, right? So you, you can have, you can have these, um, this bacteria or these different types of bacteria that are living in your gut and you could be totally fine. And then you might hit a stressful period in your life and boom, all of a sudden symptoms flare up. It becomes problematic. Whereas before it wasn't a problem, right? So this is a long-winded way of saying that stress can impact lots of other things and create lots of symptoms. So if you're dealing with a lot of overlapping symptoms and you're not sure where to start, it's not a bad idea to start with the stress response, to look at cortisol, to address the HPA axis, okay? I'm going to piggyback on that with another question. Empowered underscore nutrition asked, is cortisol responsible for sudden nervous diarrhea? (sighs) Depends. When we hit acute stress, the adrenaline response is immediate. Cortisol will take 10, maybe 15 minutes to kick in. So if it just happened once, I would say probably more of an adrenaline response because during an acute stressor, peristalsis can be sped up. That's what move stuff through the GI tract. If it's a new ongoing issue that you're experiencing, um, I would think about all the other stuff that I just talked about because imbalances in cortisol can affect GI health, um, that suppression of secretory IgA, that immunoglobulin in the mucosal lining, the first line of immune defense. So if that's low, um, that's going to heighten your risk for other opportunistic organisms, viruses, parasites, bacteria, fungus, yeast, and those types of things in the GI tract can cause um, diarrhea. Um, RLK Borden asks, how do I know if mine is out of whack, my cortisol is out of whack? So there are some classic telltale signs that your cortisol is wonky, wacky, dysregulated. If you're feeling stressed, if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling like you can't relax, that's a good sign. If you're exhausted or burnt out, um, if you catch a second wind at night, you get that wired and tired feeling or And this causes you to have a hard time falling asleep. Or let's say you fall asleep, but you have a hard time staying asleep. If you're dealing with insomnia, if you just can't get a good night's sleep and you're creating the space to have a good night's sleep, it's just not happening for you. If you wake up hungry during the night, I know this isn't super common, but I see it enough that it's worth a mention. If you wake up feeling just totally dragged down in the morning, even if you get a full night's sleep. So waking up, feeling tired, or feeling like you're a slow starter in the morning. It takes you a while to get going. If you're reliant upon coffee, caffeine, sweets for energy, or to get going in the morning, you just need your cup of coffee. Um, Like you need that stimulant to get going and to stay going throughout the day. If you have little or no energy to exercise, to move your body, right? Um, Getting chronic headaches, dizzy, feeling lightheaded, or having low blood pressure can all be signs of adrenal dysfunction. If you have a hard time losing weight around your middle, specifically around the abdomen, uh, that could be a sign of cortisol imbalance. If you're if you feel anxious and irritable often, or if you feel melancholy, depressed, emotionally exhausted, 
psychologically burnt out, if you know that you have poor immunity, meaning that you catch everything that goes around or when you do catch something, it feels like it just lingers and lingers and lingers. You have a hard time clearing it. Um, if you have blood sugar regulation that you cannot manage through diet alone. So like you've worked on diet to support blood sugar regulation and it's not doing the trick. Or if you have no sex drive. So those are all good signs that something is amiss with cortisol. Athena dot future PhD, which is a very clear and easy handle to read. Um, she says, how can you tell cortisol is lowered? We all know how to lower stress, but how can we tell if we have low cortisol? And I say to you, Athena, do we, do we really know how to lower stress? <laughs> do we? <laughs> Working on it. Um, all right. So the, the classic signs of a low cortisol picture, true low cortisol picture usually look like burnout, exhaustion, and depletion. Just chronic fatigue, hard getting out of bed, hard to get motivated, hard to move the body. Those are all tend to be signs of low cortisol, but not always. So this part, this is a little tricky. Going off of symptoms alone, it's hard to exactly pinpoint high cortisol, low cortisol, which type of patterning you have. Um, you can say just based on those symptoms I read, like, oh yeah, I definitely have some cortisol issues, but it's hard to pinpoint exactly what those cortisol issues are without testing. There's different patterns. So you might have like a true low cortisol. You might have a true high cortisol. You might not be clearing cortisol effectively out of the system. Uh, you might be deactivating it. You might be getting rid of it or keeping more in circulation. And really the only way to, to know that is through testing. So there's different type of testing in different type of ways to look at cortisol. The most basic one is through a blood test, so serum testing. And this is what you would get if you went to your primary care doctor, an endocrinologist, a gynecologist, and you're like, hey, doctor, can you look at my hormones? Um, it's pretty easy to do. It's um, generally not expensive because it's covered by insurance in most cases. But it's not the best reflection of what's actually going on with cortisol because it doesn't show a diurnal pattern. So it doesn't give too much information. And what I mean by di diurnal pattern, there are certain hormones that stay relatively static throughout the course of the day in your bloodstream. And then there are certain um, there are certain hormones that fluctuate and cortisol is one that fluctuates on a 24 hour schedule. So when you wake up, as soon as you open your eyes, as soon as light hits the eyes, you should get a surge of cortisol. So you should get this big cortisol spike. That's by design. That's a good thing. That's, that's what we want. I mean, if you think about it, getting like being completely unconscious in sleep and then all of a sudden being up and like, up and about and like highly functioning throughout your day. It's a pretty drastic change. So of course we're going to need some type of stimulation to make that happen. And cortisol is part of that stimulation. Um, but then it should slowly taper off throughout the course of the day. And we should, by the end of the day, by evening time, as we move into our sleep state, we want cortisol to be relatively on the low side. So a blood test wouldn't tell us anything about our rhythm or our patterning. It just kind of shows us like what cortisol was doing in that exact moment that it was tested. Then we have saliva. So you spit in a tube. 
um, or you use a cotton swab to test for this. And this is measuring free cortisol and it does show that diurnal pattern. You Traditionally what you would do is you would spit in four tubes throughout the course of the day. So you do it four different times throughout the day so you can see that cortisol curve that I was just describing. And this is been the gold standard of testing for many years in the alternative health space with naturopaths and um, doctors that are are using more of alternative medicine, functional medicine. Um, I don't even like to call it alternative medicine, but that's what we call it. So, um, so that has been traditionally used for decades is the saliva testing. And then we have dried urine. So the test that I use and talk about in what is part of my hormone program, your hormone revival, is something called the Dutch test. And it's from a company called Precision Analytical. Dutch stands for dried urine test for comprehensive hormones. And you, it's urine on filter paper. So four times throughout the day, you pee on paper and this captures um, more than just cortisol, captures multiple hormones throughout the day. But since we're talking about cortisol, it also, you're also able to plot out that cortisol curve that I was just talking about. There's a direct correlation between free cortisol in the urine uh, and in your saliva. So we can, we can catch it through urine as well. And Dutch test is definitely the cool kid on the block in the functional medicine space. Typically what I, what the way that I look at things as just because something is new and jazzy, doesn't necessarily mean that it's automatically better, um, but there definitely are some benefits. Like we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't want to say, well, you know, saliva is crap. We should all be using urine. I mean, there's a, the, like I said, there's a tradition of use of saliva testing, but there are definitely specific benefits to looking at cortisol through urine. Um, there's a unique value of urine. It, it shows us things that saliva cannot um, the reason that I like to use it in my practice is because it shows cortisol metabolites. It does a, a lot of other things for other hormones as well, but specifically for cortisol, we're able to see the metabolites, which is a better marker for overall production, for like what the gland is actually putting out. Free cortisol, which is what we're looking at with saliva, only accounts for somewhere between one to 5% of total cortisol. So a very, very small amount. Now free cortisol is, we need, is it's important. The free hormone is what is moving through the blood. It's what's docking to receptor sites to do the thing. So free cortisol is super duper important, um, but it's just a small fragment of total cortisol production. So on um, the Dutch test, what we can see, we're, we're measuring both free cortisol and total metabolized cortisol. So we can see both. They're shown on different dials on the test. Um, and the reason that I like it, I used to run saliva. And so if you are, let's say you get a good example is you, you, if you ran a saliva test and it showed that somebody had free, low cortisol, low free cortisol. Okay. Um, but then you ran a Dutch test and you saw on the urine test that their metabolized cortisol was high. So their free cortisol was low, but their metabolized cortisol, their total cortisol production was high. You wouldn't treat that person the same way that you would treat a true low cortisol picture. Um, 
So I do think it offers up more information, especially in regards to how do we do a deeper dive on this person if we need to, or because if, if, if free and, and metabolized cortisols mismatch, we want to do a deeper dive to figure out why those dials are not in line with one another. We'll talk about this later too, because there's a specific question um, that, that came up about this. So I think the best way to get the most information is to do a dried cortisol test, or I'm sorry, a dried urine test. Um, there is, Dutch does offer a combination of dried urine and saliva which shows the cortisol awakening response. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. And I'm actually, as a bonus for this round of your hormone revival, I'm throwing in that extra test. It's a $100 value um, for free. That's a that's a bonus. It's going to give you more information. Well, it's really going to give me more information because I'm the one analyzing your labs. So it's going to give us more information about what specifically is going on with you. So the the um if you're thinking about ordering a Dutch test just to give you an idea of the cost of Dutch testing, a Dutch complete that's just urine is 3.99 on their website and a Dutch plus which includes the saliva as well, is $4.99. I don't recommend doing this um, because these tests are super complex to analyze. I was talking with my practitioner um, training group and I was joking that I've probably invested like 40 hours at this point, probably more than that, um, of like just in learning how to analyze Dutch tests. So they're really complex. They're, they're one of those tests where you see it, you get instantaneously overwhelmed um, if you're not trained in how to analyze them because there's just a lot going on. If you've ever seen a touch test, you're probably nodding along. You're like, yeah, totally. Um, so I think it can create a lot of overwhelm unless you have somebody that can help you analyze that test. So just a heads up there, but uh, to give you an idea of the cost, you know, you're looking at, depending on which test you do, about four or $500. So moving on to some other questions about cortisol. Atwood underscore Julie asks, how does low blood glucose affect cortisol and vice versa? So the basic way, and remember blood glucose and blood sugar, we can use those two terms interchangeably. But the basic way to remember this is if blood sugar drops, cortisol rises. The big thing here is that Cortisol is a glucocorticoid, meaning one of its main functions, we know cortisol as the stress response, but one of its main functions is to mobilize energy in the form of glucose, in the form of blood sugar, to fuel action. Now, the body and the brain depend on a very constant supply of glucose to keep the body functioning properly. So the system is pretty tightly regulated and... That's why symptoms of low blood sugar can often present as brain fog, just like foggy headedness in the brain or cognition, like clunky brain, like the gears aren't turning fast enough um, because the brain isn't getting appropriate fuel. It needs that constant flow of glucose. When I snap, when I snap into the microphone, does it have the effect that I'm hoping it has? I never know. Um... In, so in that way, cortisol helps to stabilize blood sugar. If there's an imbalance in cortisol, it will be harder to regulate blood sugar, right? That's its job. That's why some folks with adrenal issues 
really need to hyper um, focus on blood sugar regulation. And until the adrenal issues resolve, they have a harder time regulating blood sugar. You really want to be working on both simultaneously. It's not usually like an either or. Sometimes it is. But if both things are going on, you got to dial them both in simultaneously. Um, if you're dealing with, with blood sugar regulation, with low blood sugar drops, you're constantly calling upon cortisol to regulate blood sugar, right? Blood sugar goes low, cortisol goes high. That's the pattern you want to remember in your brain. When blood sugar levels drop, the body releases cortisol to maintain blood sugar levels. And it does that by releasing glucose from stored glycogen, right? We always have glycogen stores, so cortisol can easily access that that uh, that glucose to pump into the bloodstream. Um, Carolina C. George asks, could you talk more about the role of carbs in cortisol regulation? And that really feeds into exactly what I'm talking about here um, because part of blood sugar regulation is figuring out <laughs> figuring out your carbohydrate threshold and then staying within that threshold. Now, that doesn't always mean being low carb. I sometimes worry that when I say things like carb threshold, people automatically automatically hear low carb. Uh, one of the biggest reasons that I see for low blood sugar is actually being on a low carb diet. Somebody with their ovarian sex hormones on a low carb diet, and especially if they're layering on intensive exercise on top of that, that can be one of the uh, a big contributing factor to low blood sugar swings. So when I'm saying find your carb threshold, I really don't want people to hear that means you need to be on a low carb diet in order to regulate cortisol. You actually might need to be on a higher carb diet than you're eating right now. So that's a lot of the work that we do in my carb compatibility project um, is really dialing in that specific carbohydrate threshold. In your hormone revival, we also get into the importance of blood sugar regulation and how to eat in a way that supports hormones through blood sugar. This is why I also test for this in your hormone revival. We are looking at blood sugar and insulin markers because there is no hormone balancing without blood sugar regulation. So you need to regulate blood sugar in order to regulate cortisol, in order to regulate thyroid, in order to regulate estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, okay? This is like blood sugar regulation is at the crux of hormonal health. It's a big one. It's a really, really, really big one. Um, and I always joke that I know that blood sugar regulation isn't sexy or glamorous, but it's important. So we keep talking about it. Um, Julie also asked, exercising first thing in the morning, is this the best time for healthy circadian rhythm? I will say that the exercise thing really depends. If you have a low cortisol awakening response or you don't get that cortisol spike first thing in the morning, then doing exercise first thing in the morning could actually be a really great thing to retrain that rhythm. If your rhythm, we have a few um, a few questions about your that circadian rhythm being thrown off. That 
could potentially be a way to retrain it. Um, and you can tinker around with that to see if it makes you feel better. So if you, if you, especially if you have that low morning cortisol picture, but it could also be too much for some people. If, if you have low morning cortisol, you might have very low energy and just the thought of exercising first thing in the morning might just be enough to make you cry. So, um, it's not, it's not a, it's not a hard fat and fast rule. I've also seen people do really well um, who are dealing with more of the adrenal depletion picture with like more of like the lower hormone picture, uh, starting to get some movement in around three or four o'clock in the afternoon. That seems to be a well tolerated time. Um, but again, there's so many other factors that that play in here that I'm really hesitant to give a prescriptive, this is the best time of day to exercise. If um, one, one episode, if you haven't listened already, that I would recommend checking out is episode 72 called Exercising with Adrenal Fatigue and Cortisol Dysregulation. That kind of gives you a checklist to go down and help you determine if what you're doing is too much and if you need to dial it back or try moving your exercise to a, um, a different time of day, or um, just exercises that are more helpful for high or low cortisol pictures. Okay, simply.healthy.wellness. How to rebalance our cortisol. What to do and what not to do when our cortisol is out of whack. The easy answer for me here is to say, join your hormone revival because we spend three months doing exactly this, repatterning the systems to bring everything back into balance and talking about all of the things that might throw cortisol off balance. Um, but if that's not something you're planning to do, I would say the big three things here, the big three. One, reduce your stressors. Um, that's a big one, <laughs> but even the hidden stressors, like if you think about what I was talking about on last week's podcast, um, you know, psychological stressors that we might not even be aware of until we like sit down and we're like, what is going on here? Right. I talked about kind of doing a life audit last week and, um, identifying where the biggest source of stress comes from. Like I was talking about, um, I don't think I told this story last week, but when my natural, when I was with my naturopath, she asked me, um, when I, the, the first, she was trying to root around <laughs> in more ways than one, bada bing. Um, she was trying to root around and figure out if there was a, an emotional or psychological component to what I was dealing with. And by the way, I believe 100% Every single time something wonky goes on in my body, every time there's a physical symptom, there's almost always an energetic or emotional um, thing going on for me as well. So I was all for it. And I was like, please, doctor, find the thing. And she just kept, kept asking me questions. And I was like, yeah, 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 nothing, nothing super major, nothing super, um, you know, like, aha for me. And then she asked the question, could you just take a day off of work? Could you just have one day a week where you don't work? And I started sobbing, like really just like 
you know, like when the cries come from like deep in your belly, I can always tell my daughter when she's like crying just to kind of put on a show or when she's like really feeling deep stuff and it's like coming up deep from the wells of her belly. That's how it felt. I'm like, these tears have been locked in for a long time and here they come. Um, and I was like, oh, this is a thing to look at. This is a thing to look at. So that's kind of what I mean by auditing your life and identifying stressors that, hey, maybe you're not even conscious or aware of. Um, so that's one. The second thing is to regulate your blood sugar to prevent adrenal involvement. So using food as a way to regulate your blood sugar, right? We just talked about that. The third one is to support your circadian rhythm. We're going to get into that in a second. So those are the big three. Reduce your stressors, regulate blood sugar, support circadian rhythm. Um, this one I'm going to butcher. Uh, Balia Meeks says, how do you regulate it? Cortisol. I'm having too much and or too little at the wrong times. So having cortisol, this is kind of what I was talking about with that patterning, right? That that rhythm is is messed up. It sounds like what um, Belia Meeks is dealing with is more of a diurnal pattern issue here. So instead of getting the, the spikes in the morning and then slowly tapering off throughout the course of the day, it might be a little bit jacked up. So ways to re-regulate that pattern on top of doing stress management is again blood sugar regulation eating so your blood sugar is regulated even while you're sleeping what can happen is if blood sugar crashes at night um, your brain freaks out a little bit and cortisol needs to jump in adrenaline needs to jump in things need to jump in to try to mobilize fuel sources for the brain so um, there are certain practices you can do with your food to make sure that you're regulating that blood sugar. From a blood sugar standpoint, protein, fat, and fiber are the most regulating. Um, so you always want to work those three things into each and every meal and snack. Um, doing a bedtime snack can be helpful for people who are dealing with low blood sugar crashes while they sleep as well. So think about that. Um, really working on sleep hygiene. So this is reducing light and reducing stressors at night. So blue light specifically from uh, screens like your computer, your phone, your iPad, your TV, all of those things are going to suppress melatonin production, which um, is going to impact falling asleep, staying asleep. Melatonin and um and cortisol are sort of like a yin and yang situation. I've heard it referred to as the sun and the moon. So cortisol is the sun and melatonin is the moon. As cortisol tapers off in the evening, melatonin starts to increase and spike. So we have to work on both of those hormones and both of those patternings as well. So sleep hygiene, there's a lot of different tips and tricks for sleep hygiene um, that I'll maybe get into in a, in a future episode, but that's something that we do in the hormone program and then potentially doing some light therapy in the morning. So as soon as you wake up, go outside, get some natural light or use a full spectrum light box. So you're trying to reduce light in the evening. You're also wanting to reduce stressors in the evening. So this is like working or exercise in the evening or doing anything that's going to stimulate a cortisol response, a stress response, mitigate those at night. Um, 
really calm yourself down, make sure you're getting adequate sleep, and then get some light into your eyeballs first thing in the morning. And that's one way that you can help to regulate the pattern or that rhythm. Bridget Brock asks, if night shifts and sleep deprivation can throw cortisol off, how long before they normalize when you go back to a regular sleep schedule? So again, yes, they totally can. Melatonin and cortisol like the sun and the moon. So that diurnal pattern can be messed up if you're awake at the night and you're asleep during the day. And during shift work, the cortisol awakening response is decreased. So you don't get that sharp cortisol spike and evening cortisol levels are increased. So it's basically opposite of what we would want to see. Um, as far as how long it takes, that that really depends on the individual. And I would also probably say your resiliency to stress. If you have a high resiliency, you could probably bounce back. Low resiliency, it might take some time. What's interesting and pretty cool is that um, three nights of camping has been shown to reset their circadian rhythm. So <laughs> maybe just pitch a tent in your backyard. The The trick is here is that you're sleeping on the ground. You're not having any um, synthetic lights. So you're waking up with the sun and you're going down with the sun as well. And, and following the cycles of nature and the moon and the sun uh, can help to reset your own, um, your own cycle. Because hey, guess what? It's all interrelated. It's not just with witchcraft. It's, it's real stuff. All right, um, let me check on time here. All right, let's blast through some more questions before we take a pause and return next next time. So high cortisol questions. Maloney13 asks, what are lifestyle changes to help cortisol spikes? So real quick off the top of my head, caffeine audit your caffeine intake, eliminate or drastically reduce your caffeine intake. Caffeine raises free cortisol in a very real way. So if somebody's dealing with high cortisol issues, you got to get that caffeine out of there. It's going to continue to push the needle in the wrong direction. You also, of course, want to regulate blood sugar. You want to think about things that you might be doing that are cortisol eliciting. So for example, high intensity interval training is spikes cortisol, um, really intense exercise spikes cortisol. So those might not be the best choices for you. Um, other, we're going to get into the next question from Reed underscore Williams. There's three E's in Reed. So Reed underscore Williams. How the flip to lower cortisol or to figure out if something else is causing it other than general stress. So let's tuck into some reasons for high cortisol. We always want to address the root cause. We're not trying to just test cortisol, say, oh, cortisol's high. Now we're going to smash it down. We're going to cram it down with supplements. No, 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 no. We're always asking, but why? But why? Why is cortisol high to begin with? So some root causes for high cortisol would be stress, right? What I was talking about earlier. This could be mental stress. It could also be physical stress. So if you were dealing with acute inflammation or pain in the body or acute infection, those would all be considered physical stressors. 
chemical stressors as well that is stressor. So this is um, synthetic chemicals and toxins we're coming in contact with in the environment. I mean, our environment is essentially riddled with them and our bodies, our human bodies are not super adept at just dealing with the constant influx of man-made chemicals. So that could be a stressor to the body. We all have different thresholds for that. Once we hit our threshold, it becomes even more of a stressor. Um, now, like I was saying, acute infection, this can actually be a gut infection or gut inflammation that can also drive up cortisol as well. Insulin and glucose problems. So high insulin, high glucose. This is, again, this is why I'm testing glucose and insulin levels in your hormone revival because we can't just look at cortisol. We also want to know what else could be contributing to this high cortisol picture if it is high cortisol. Coffee, caffeine, stimulant use can all drive up cortisol. Poor sleep hygiene, if you're not getting enough sleep, if you're not getting sound sleep, that can drive up cortisol. Um, I know that we have the people that pride themselves on not sleeping. I don't need that much sleep. I don't need that much sleep. That eventually catches up to you. You actually do as a human being need sleep um, and lack of sleep can drive up cortisol. Hyper, excuse me, hyperthyroidism. So thyroid issues can impact cortisol. That's again why I'm testing the thyroid in your hormone revival just to get more information, more context. And then certain cortisol medications, uh, Cortef and um, hydrocortisone can, can drive up cortisol as well. So we had some questions about the interplay between cortisol and other hormones. Laya.c says, what's the role that cortisol plays with hypothalamic amenorrhea? So this is a good question. And with HA, um, there appears to be blunted responses to certain hormones. So there's a reduced sensitivity and um, expression of the receptor of CRH, which is cortisol-releasing hormone. When we talk about adrenal fatigue, it's it's not that the actual glands get fatigued. And I know I've talked about this a ton on the show and explained this, but it bears repeating. It's not like the gland itself gets tired and is like, I'm going to go to bed. I'm taking a rest. But it's more of an issue with communication between different glands, uh, different hormones and receptor sites. There is this feedback mechanism of hormones, including cortisol. So if you're producing a lot of cortisol, if cortisol's high, if you're making a lot, you're producing a lot, the cortisol will feed back to the hypothalamus and that will stop producing CRH, cortisol-releasing hormone. When that happens, that's going to reduce the output to the pituitary gland. So there'll be less ACTH, which is what tells the adrenals to make cortisol. So if we have high cortisol cranking and cranking and cranking for a long time, eventually that feedback loop is going to kick in and it's going to slow things down. So this is why we can start off with high cortisol and end up with a low cortisol picture. Um, And this might be part of the picture of what's going on with um, hypothalamic amenorrhea. Women with functional HA appear to be more 
reactive at the endocrine level to uh, the metabolic demands of exercise. I feel like that's kind of interesting. They have a heightened cortisol response to exercise. So we know that a lot of HA is, um, is in response to under-exercising and overtraining. So not eating enough and working out, uh, chronic dieting. Not enough food, not enough calories, not enough carbohydrates, all of that really heavily can contribute to an HA picture, not 100% of the time, but often. And so what, what we're seeing is that those with HA are putting out, they have a more heightened response to exercise. So it becomes this stressor, right? And if you're pumping out cortisol, pumping out cortisol, pumping out cortisol, then eventually your body might not be producing cortisol. I would say by the time somebody gets to me with HA, their hormones are kind of flatlined. So there's their cortisol's low, DHEA might be low, their sex hormones are low, their cortisol curve is flatlined, like everything is just kind of... Um, that's what I see in my practice. It's kind of more of an anecdotal thing. Um Anyway, so there's there's a lot of interplay. My point is, I'm just like kind of going down a, a rabbit hole right now, but th- that there's a lot of interplay between cortisol and, um, and HA. Um, I grabbed this quote from a study that says, underlying um, stress sensitivity in women with functional hypothalamic amenorrhea highlights the importance of the use of psychological interventions for stress reduction in this population, which basically, basically is saying, if this is you, you've got to work on your stress, right? Whatever stressors that might be, wherever those stressors are coming into play, that needs to be a part of recovery and a treatment plan. All right. G.F. Donahue asks, how cortisol levels might be impacted by hormonal birth control. So listen up. Before I start talking about birth control, there's a big wave of doctors on Instagram right now coming out very vocally against anyone who dares say anything about birth control, right? And that's like functional witchcraft. I don't know. It's like you just can't. So before anybody asks me about being anti-birth control or reports me to the allopathic medicine police, just slow your roll, fall back, actually listen to the words coming out of my mouth. Chances are if you're here, you're not going to do that anyway. But listen, I am not anti-birth control. I am pro-informed consent, meaning before somebody embarks on a birth control journey, before somebody is given birth control, they should have availability or they should have access to the information. Information should be available to them, right? Potential side effects, potential drawbacks to the medication. It's not saying nobody should take birth control. It's saying that if you're about to take a medication, you should understand what the potential side effects could be, right? That, that, that is not crazy, and that should not be silenced on social media or anywhere. That is really common sense. This one gets me fired up. I want to give you an example of informed consent that has nothing to do with birth control, so hopefully I can tell this story without people getting hyper-reactive to it because I guess birth control is a massively hot button. Um, I... Um, I probably told this on the show before, but not this exact 
story. So I got shingles two years ago. It was on the right side of my face. Um, I like a year, a while later, I started getting eye twitching like on the nerve pattern. I actually haven't had it in a couple of months. So hallelujah. But for almost like nine straight months or 10 straight months, my eye twitched every day. So I went to the a neurologist to be like, hi, my eye is twitching. Um, and he did a total like full neurology exam and was like, you pass this with flying colors. Like, I don't think this is an issue. I think this is in response to shingles, like post post shingle stuff. But to be on the safe side, let's send you in for an MRI. And I've never gotten an MRI before. So I was like, okay. So I went to the appointment, um, went to the hospital, checked in, the whole nine yards. And as they were getting me ready for the MRI, um, he sat me down, the tech sat me down. And he's like, okay, so before we um, we inject you with the contrast, I need you to fill this out. And I was like, what's that now? How now, brown cow? <laughs> what are you injecting me with? I had no idea. I didn't know anything about MRIs. So it's not uncommon to do a contrast MRI on the brain. And in order to do that, they have to inject you with something called gadolinium. I had absolutely no information about this. So I just said to him, hey, look, I can't sign this paper. I cannot give you informed consent because I don't have any information. I got to take a beat on this. I got to gather up information before I can give you my consent to do this. He was super nice guy. It was awesome. Um, I looked into it. It turns out that gadolinium is not a good choice for me, given my health history and my set of circumstances, the scleroderma diagnosis I have. So I opted out and my neurologist uh, called in a non-contrast MRI. This is just an example of um, how we have autonomy over our bodies and we can work with healthcare professionals, even within conventional medicine, even within the allopathic system, we can still have autonomy. We can still have a say over what happens with our bodies. Okay. So that's really important to me. Nobody's going to be shooting me up with anything against my will. Um, so that's, that is what I'm talking about with informed consent. We need the information before we can make, uh, a solid choice before we can figure out what is right for us. It's not up to doctors to tell us what's right for us. We can have conversations with doctors, right? We can, we can discuss all of this with doctors, but it's not, they're not gods, right? We shouldn't put them in positions of being gods, of saying, I know what is right for you. I am the authority on your body. That's a, that's a no for me, dog. Anyway, 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 to answer the actual question at hand from GF Donahue, um, oral contraceptives can impact the hypothalamic feedback mechanism that I was just talking about. So it can interrupt that communication system. Well, that's by design. It's supposed to do that. It's it's the mechanism of action to the ovaries. It's how it works as uh, birth control. Um, but just understand that there is communication. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's wonky communication going on. Hormonal birth control also increases a protein called cortisol binding globulin, which does exactly what it says. It, it binds up cortisol so it's not free to scoot around the bloodstream. 
and dock to receptor sites and do its job. So it impacts cortisol in that way. And then the pill can also deplete certain nutrients, specifically certain B vitamins, vitamin C, magnesium, and zinc. All of these vitamins and nutrients are um, very necessary and important for proper adrenal health. So there's a lot of different ways that it can impact. And this is anecdotally what I see. I've found women's experience with birth control super individualized, meaning that some come off it and they're right as rain. They're totally fine, no problem. And some come off it and they struggle for years to recalibrate their hormonal systems. They struggle for years to recalibrate their GI systems because, yep, hormonal birth control can impact digestive health as well in the gut. So um, so I would do a deeper dive. Jolene Brighton, I've had her on the show before, and she has a book, and she has some really tremendous information about, about all of this. So I would do a deep dive before making this decision for yourself or if you have a kiddo that you need to help make a decision for. Um, really think it through. All right. Uh, Balia Max, this is, or Balia Meeks, this is going to be the last question that I answer on this particular podcast episode. Um, is cortisol related to hormones and fertility? And I think the best way to think about hormones is that they're all related to each other. So the answer to this is yes. Uh, but there is a very big link between cortisol and fertility. And the most basic way I can describe it is like this. If the brain registers stress, right? If the brain's like, oh, this is a stressful situation. She is stressed out. It's going to say, mm, huh, now's not the best time to bring new life into this world, we don't want to bring new life into a stressful situation. So I'm not going to try to get pregnant right now. So it it changes or it reduces the messages the brain does that it sends to the ovaries. So that's going to change our cycle. That's going to change our hormonal output. So stress can also cause an anovulatory cycle. It's pretty darn common. Um, so an anovulatory cycle is a menstrual cycle in which there is no ovulation. So you can bleed, but you don't ovulate. Without ovulation, you can't make progesterone. That's how our bodies make progesterone is, is through ovulation. Progesterone is pro-gestation. It's pro-pregnancy. So if you don't have ample progesterone, this will impact fertility as well. So short answer, yes, cortisol is related to hormones, to other hormones, and related to fertility. I talked about this concept more in one of those previous cortisol episodes, 82 or 83, so you can hear more detail about that. But short answer, yes. All right, let's stick a pin in it for now. Um, in part two, we're going to get into more specifics, like what do you do for high cortisol? What do you do for low cortisol? Uh, we'll be talking about cortisol clearance issues, cortisol in weight. That was a, a question that came in a couple of different times. What's the connection between cortisol and weight loss or weight gain? How cortisol, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> I don't know if you heard that. I just did something weird with my throat. How cortisol can be activated and deactivated, what that means and how to know. We're going to get into menopause a little bit because there's some interesting changes that happen then. And then I'll answer some questions about supplementation. Okay, so come back for part two. 
for more information about cortisol. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. Take care of you.